Welcome to The Sisters Web, episode three, with me, Tabitha Webb, and my very scary big sister, Meryn Somerset Webb. When I say big, by the way, it's because she's older, not because she's fat, because obviously she's very thin and gorgeous. Hi, Meryn. Hi. Our guest today is the very clever and gorgeous Wendell Stevenson, who is an author and a food writer and the winner of the Fortnum's Food Writer of the Year, which is an award that she won last year. So we're super proud of her. Last well week, last week. She won it what last week. What did I week. say, last year? Last year, she won last week. This is new Sorry, and last exciting week. and big. <laughs> I She's, know it is. She's drowning, drowning in the hampers she won as a prize. Right, I, I love the fact that both of you are either numerically challenged or, or, or space, time and spatially challenged. You know, it's I think two, that's the entire three. population. It's last week, it's last year. I know. I mean, nobody has any idea what's going on anymore. Literally don't even know the day of the week. Tell us about the prize first. The prize was a ginormous hamper that was about as much fun as some kind of pick and mix at the county fair because it came full of wonderful kind of sawdust and so you just go <laughs> diving in the sawdust and you would come up with a jar of heather honey a jar of strawberry and rose petal preserve oh, a bottle yum. of champagne a bottle of really quite good margot chocolate caramels in a really fancy box there were all the tins are gorgeous and then there was a tea flavored liqueur and lots of tea and horseradish and it just went on and on and on and it's just kind of frankly the best prize i've ever had so when was it it sounds amazing that hamper was it worth the 20 what 30 years of writing to get to this point um well you know we, we writers take it where we can get it but you know <laughs> Yes, it was almost worth 20 or 30 years of writing to get to this point. But look, I mean, you know, any little bit of validation, it all helps, plus chocolate. What did you do to, to actually win the award? Was it a specific piece of writing or was it accumulation of being amazing for years? So it's based on the writing that you have done over a year. So I got it for two or three longer form essays that I wrote, one about vanilla in Madagascar and I went to Madagascar and talked to vanilla farmers there because the price of vanilla had spiked tenfold and so you had this rather extraordinary phenomenon of a kind of vanilla rush like a gold rush in the bush in the depths of the Madagascan forest which is one of the poorest places on earth one of the poorest countries on the earth and suddenly you have you know subsistence farmers you know earning 20 or 30 thousand dollars a year and um, over two or three years. So it's this kind of rather interesting story about what happens next. What do you do with that? How do you invest? Well, how do you think about your village or your place in the world when something like, when you get a windfall like that? Wendy, I have to interrupt there. I have to interrupt there. What drove the price of vanilla so high? Um, it was a combination of things, but it, it, it was murky as some of these spikes sometimes are. 80% of the world's vanilla comes from Madagascar. So mm -hmm. it was a sort of really interesting, you know, a, a very specific case study to look at. Like a lot of commodities like chocolate and coffee and spices are grown in different places. But Madagascar really has the market and the monopoly on vanilla. So what happened was there was an uptick of global demand as people wanted to go back to a natural product rather than synthetic vanilla, which is more commonly used in most of the you know, processed goods and ice cream and cakes and stuff. But more importantly, when you drill down into it, it turns out that actually it was the side product of money laundering from the proceeds of illegal logging in the Madagascan rainforests. And when 
the Madagascan government under international pressure stopped the sale of hardwoods mostly to China. Um, there was all this money um, from that trade sloshing around in the north of Madagascar and essentially it went into speculating on vanilla. Um, and so you suddenly got this rather extraordinary market that was being driven by cash and by the need to speculate and make money more than it was being driven by an actual shortage. Fascinating, a proper little financial bubble. A proper little financial bubble, um, but one that's sort of oddly sustaining more than you would think. A bit like, you know, stock markets when it's sort of, I don't know, not too big to fail necessarily, but there are just too many people invested in a certain price to let it fall to what might be more reasonable. It got us a microcosm of the global stock markets today. Too many people too invested in letting it fall. Huge monetary stimulus around the world to keep prices up. And all we had to do for a case study was look to Madagascar. Quick, Merrin, you've got your next column. I have a column. Quick. <laughs> I keep telling people that actually, you know, if you start drilling down into food, when I say I write about food, people go, oh, that must be nice restaurants, recipes. And I'm like, no, 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 food is much more important than that. Food is life and death and economics and politics and inequalities and agriculture and Brexit. And it's everything. It's how we live and communicate and trade. And and you start asking a kind of question, where does this come from? Who grew it? Why am I paying this price for it? And all sorts of peculiar things begin to unpack. It's kind of fascinating. So so why did you, what, what led your interest into food then? Is it that you're obsessed with food and cooking and recipes or is it the bigger picture? Um, there are a couple of things. I mean, yes, I'm obsessed with food and I like cooking and it's just, it's a passion. And I always, you know, I've always liked it, always been interested in it, always want to read that section of the paper first, you know, gravitate to the cookbook section in the in the in the bookstore, all of that. I had a sort of a kind of minor revelation in Lebanon about three, three or four years ago now that I've been in the Middle East for 10 or 15 years reporting on you know, wars and revolutions, and it was all rather increasingly violent and increasingly depressing and difficult. And mm. I wanted to write something about Syrian refugees in Lebanon. And I think this was 2016, maybe. And there had been, there, there were a mi over a million of them. Um, and the story had been written many, many times. So there wasn't anything new to, to tell, but I wanted to understand their situation. and I wanted to see it for myself. And I thought that a good way in would be food. I just sort of had the idea, I'm not going to go and ask them their life story or what happened to them. I'm just going to talk to them about food. And this kind of rather extraordinary thing happened that I'd be sitting with, you know, refugee families in tents in the Bekaa Valley. And they're very used to journalists and, and NGO workers. And there's a kind of um, inevitable transactional quality to the conversation often because, you know, they need to explain the worst thing that ever happened to them so that you somehow find it worthy of recording or reporting or remedying. Mm. Um, and so it's, it's also kind of tra traumatizing and also impossible actually, if we're honest about it as journalists to check, you know, you can't really fact check um, a lot of these stories. So people, you know, not over egg isn't the right word, but are selective about it. Anyway, I sat down with a bunch of women and I began to say, so what are you, you know, what are you cooking for lunch? Mm. What's in your kitchen? What does your kitchen look like? And all of a sudden, apart from it being completely fascinating because you then understand the mechanisms of the World Food Programme and how they were um, getting food baskets and so forth. But 
they suddenly had an agency and something positive to describe and discuss with you. So they would say, well, I'm making lentil soup, but you know, it's not like my mother. My mother would you know, put the, this particular kind of Aleppo red pepper in it and we don't have that. So I've been using this that comes from here. So suddenly they're talking about something that is about their identity, that's about their background, that's about their family, that's about what they're doing today. And, and they had a story to tell that unfolded in many different layers that was not the most negative thing that had happened to them. And it was actually incredibly powerful and encouraging. And I realized that actually in a lot of different ways, I mean, I did this same sort of thing talking to migrants in Sicily, trying to understand a little bit how they were integrating into Europe and so forth and how that was going for them just by asking them, how do you eat and what are you eating and do you miss home? And suddenly it's a way into these stories that hasn't previously been tried. And so it felt like tapping into this kind of rich new vein of journalism. But it was also a way for people to talk positively about their cultures and their day to day and their friends and how they got together or what they cooked. And it put a different spin on it. So I was just I'm kind of amazed at the ability of food to describe ourselves. Uh, to each other. Um, and that's kind of magical. When it really works in a story, it's really magical. See, that is completely amazing. You've just totally drawn me in. I'm completely fascinated. <laughs> I really am. I'm like, there's amazing stories. Um, and it's really emotive, isn't it? It's really emotive. It's really connective because we all eat and we all kind of cook and we all have grandmothers who cooked us this or mothers who were bad at cooking. And we all have something to say and share about it. And it's, it's universal and it's not universal it's shared and it's also particular so I had this kind of hilarious moment um, in Sicily I was in Palermo and I'd been talking to Africans and Nigerians and some Syrians and Palestinians and different waves of migrants who've crossed the Mediterranean in different circumstances and I was looking for a way in which their they had brought their culinary culture to Sicily which is in itself you know, a culinary culture made up of many different migrations and peoples laid down in sort of sediments or millefeuille layers, as one patisserie guy said to me at one point, in a perfect mm. metaphor for um, multiculturalism. And I found on, uh, of course, one of the things that a lot of migrants and immigrants do first is go to work in restaurants and restaurant kitchens. And so they were rather hilariously or not hilariously or rather naturally adding spices to the sort of basic uh, Neapolitan and Sicilian and Italian sofrito and the base of their sauces. And twice I found curried pasta on, re on restaurant menus. And I, I had this kind of totally joyous journalistic moment. It was like, I've discovered something new. I've made a connection. I kind of thought there might be something here and I found it. Yay! And I felt like I had a scoop. And, when you know, was it like? It's very nice. I mean, I mean, of course, why wouldn't it be? Because it's just we think it, it's, you know, we, we think that these things are culturally distinct, but they're actually kind of not. And I'm, I've been watching, for example, with great amusement on the New York Times uh, food website, which is incredibly comprehensive and big and and, and wide-armed and broad-reaching. They've been having miso pasta and turmeric pasta. And, you know, there is, there is just, you know, the Italians no longer have the monopoly. I, I have to jump in on this because you said that pasta might not be fattening. Is that true? I did write about this. <laughs> and it is true. And if you 
look at, uh, I delved into the statistics for it, and it turns out that if you eat 80 or 90 grams of dried pasta rather than the kind of bigger, wadgier helping that you're going to get in a restaurant, it's actually not particularly fattening. And in fact, grains and cereals in of themselves are not a fattening thing if you look at sort of calorie per gram. There's no particular reasoning that it, reason that it's extra calorific. It's extra calorific if you, you know, dump a load of cream on it or um, a load of cheese or butter that, that, or oil. Those things are highly calorific, but you don't need much of those things to flavor it. So actually, no, I, I keep eating pasta now. Yeah, but you're eating, you're eating small amounts of it and you're probably eating fairly high quality pasta and you're also eating, Wendy, very, very, very little, little in the way of processed food. So, you know, someone like you is not going to get fat, eat pasta and a whole lot of processed food and you're going to get very fat. So it's about the rest of your diet. Yeah, no, I, the, processed, the processed food is the, is the insidious stuff because it's full of all sorts of things that it's, I mean, it's additives and emulsifiers and bulkers and chemicals that, that have a sort of odd molecular consequence that we don't really understand. Mm. And things that keep your blood sugar high on a regular basis. Yes. I mean, you, I mean, you have a diabetic in the family, Mer, so you, Marion, so you know this far better than I. I mean, nutrition and metabolism, as you know, it gets very complicated very quickly. But my forays into it have been, you know, basically processed food and highly processed food is bad and all other food is pretty good unless you have a particular, you know, issue or allergy. Yeah. Wendy, let's stick with pasta because one of the things that I wanted to ask you about was the big themes or trends that you've seen coming out of lockdown food. So you'll remember that the first week or two of the crisis. You couldn't get pasta for love nor money. It was wiped out on every shelf in the supermarket. What was that all about? Uh, it's shelf stable. I mean, it's it's bulky, it's delicious, it's universal and it lasts forever. Um, I don't think it was anything more complicated than that. Uh, rice too, you know, ran out, but we're closer to Italy than we are to China. So, we're, you know, we're a bit more of a pasta nation than a rice nation, maybe. But these were the sort of things that I bought. Uh, I'm sure you guys did too. Um, because they last forever. And when you're scared about the future, when the future is uncertain, when you don't know what's coming next, you want to have some stuff in the cupboard. It's only yeah. And what reasonable. else What else did you buy at the beginning? I bought a lot of rice and pasta and canned tomatoes. Mm -hmm. And I'm never happy unless I've got four or five things of butter in the freezer, just in case. Well, of course. <laughs> and were you impressed with heart or impressed or interested in a particular way in how the food supply chain coped because there were these shortages for a relatively brief period, pasta, rice, lentils, etc. But it didn't take very long for the supermarket sector to be right back on it. And you could always get the things you couldn't get in the supermarket at smaller suppliers or from wholesalers, etc. So I looked at the food supply chain in those first three or four weeks and was amazed actually by its efficiency and ability to cope under a lockdown environment. Did you feel the same or differently or see things that I didn't see? I thought it was, yeah, I thought it was very interesting. And it's interesting in some ways how resilient the food supply chain has been um, and in some ways how unresilient it is. And it's a it's a paradigm in a way that, yes, no, we haven't run out of very much, although I noticed that pasta is still sort of creep. It's still easier to find in smaller grocery stores than it is in supermarkets. The supermarkets have it, but not not the wide variety that you might be used to. And I know that flour has been sort of consistently difficult 
to find and source. It's interesting that everyone's baking at home and uh, mills and smaller mills and even windmills and water mills that were in fact museums are now actually producing commercially bags of flour. But I think what's interesting about that is that there was a sort of dichotomy that the catering restaurants and catering obviously fell off a cliff while domestic consumption went up. And what was difficult was for suppliers to pivot to supplying um, for the domestic market. And mostly that was a crisis of packaging and imagination than it was of supply. So that's why Mm. you got these sort of, you know, ugly stories about pouring gallons of farmers pouring gallons of milk away while there were milk shortages in some parts of the country. Um, because they'd gone into, they were selling their milk into coffee shops um, for cappuccinos and those, that was no longer a market, but they couldn't sort of pivot and, and put it in smaller bottles and get it to a dis- different distribution network. And I think we've seen that particularly in the States where in the food, in the meatpacking industries where it's such a intensive uh, industrialized mechanized system that it's dominated by very few meat processing plants that supply a huge proportion of America's meat. And when they were became rife with COVID and had to close just because so many of their uh, workers were becoming ill and they were almost becoming sort of um, contagion centers for Mm -hmm. the disease. You began to see real, uh, you know, a real bottleneck, and they're they're talking about having to slaughter ten million pigs, you know, millions of chickens being suffocated because they can't wait for those closed processing plants to come back online because then the pigs will be too big to be processed in that way, and so you see the fragility of any highly mechanized, centralized, industrialized food system. I think what's interesting is so many of us have, as you said, Merrin, gone back to the kind of the corner shop and the speciality place around the corner that seems to have been able to find and source, um, you know, butter or face masks or olive oil or pasta in a way that sometimes the bigger chains have more difficulty with in, in higher quantities. It's interesting, but the the US, the U.S. protein market is the most industrialized there is, isn't there? It's quite different to most other countries' protein markets. Yeah, it's different. U.S. and Canada are very centralized, and they have these huge meatpacking plants that you know just deal with tens of thousands of carcasses a day. So I, I think one of them that closed down, you know, pr- provided five percent of the U.S.'s pork. I mean, it's just completely mm. crazy. It makes you realize how fragile these systems are and that we've been sort of led to believe that economies of scale are all very efficient. But actually, it, when you get a bottleneck, they're very fragile. So what do you think will change after this then about the food chains and the way we eat? Well, I think the biggest change is that, you know, we've all been inside eating and not in restaurants. So, you know, the, the restaurant sector is, has fallen off a cliff and may well, you know, find it very difficult to recover. And many restaurants, I think, will not. And so it's going to be interesting to see how our suppliers change and toggle from having a sort of high, particularly in high end and high value, you know, fish and meat and, and fancy cheese and chocolate and that kind of stuff how they begin to sell into a domestic market rather than into restaurants, because I think that that will be a shift. 
But and already you're seeing, you know, for example, fish coming off day boats that would have gone to London restaurants now being sold into domestic houses and, and mm. people, find, you know, buying them and so forth. So, yeah, well, this is how we're shopping here. I mean, my mm. shopping is very much, you know, I can buy langoustine, etc. But I can't direct from the West Coast to Scotland now and have it delivered to the house. And I'm buying most of our vegetables from an organization, Charles Stamper, that used to provide only wholesale to restaurants. So I made a mistake of ordinary ordering garlic from them the other day. And I now have, I would say, roughly 400 cloves of ready peeled garlic, which would have done wonderfully for a restaurant. And I will Gross. use them. I'm fermenting them. <laughs> no, they're wonderful. I'm, I'm fermenting lots of them. We're going to eat a lot of fermented garlic. You're going to stink. The rest, the rest of the family are <laughs> a bit iffy on it. It's an adjustment for producers and consumers. Right? Yeah. It's like, what do you do with more garlic? How do you how do you sell less garlic? How do you distribute to multiple, you know, two heads of garlic to a multiple customer base rather than one? So it would be nice if, you know, for example, the old fashioned, you know, open air market came back, for example, because that was always a good, good way of bringing those producers and consumers together. And for a long time, they've been, you know, retailers and grocers and supermarkets have been in the middle and in the way of that relationship in some ways. But that's, I mean, that's been coming already. So one of the things that mm. Tether and I've talked about before is that is how the corona crisis itself is not necessarily changing things, but it's accelerating trends that were already there. So over mm. the last 10 years, you know, we've seen the rise of the farmer's market. You know, there are a couple of new farmer's markets in, in Edinburgh that weren't even here when, when I arrived in Edinburgh 10 years ago, and a shift towards trying to buy local, trying to, you know, buy, uh, cut your food miles, et cetera, et cetera. Those were trends that were already in place in the food market before coronavirus, and it looks to me, like they'll just be sort of intensified and accelerated. I hope so. I mean, I think the thing that I'm always look, kind of looking out for with one ear is that at the moment in the last sort of 20, 25 years as farmers markets and box schemes and, you know, high end meat producers selling mm -hmm. free range beef and stuff it, have made those connections directly either to restaurants or to domestic consumers. But it's been very much on the high end. It's very much a sort of privileged thing. And farmers yeah. markets, the prices are kind of high. And it's and it's not where you're going to do your weekly shop or your bulk buy. And what I'd really like to see is what you see, you know, in Europe or in France, where I lived for many years, is, you know, the big markets that sell, you know, pile it high, sell it cheap. And there are still a few of those around the country in Britain. But... You know, you want the, there to be a possibility to buy, you know, the fancy, wonderful heirloom tomatoes, but you also want to be able to buy several kilos of tomatoes that are a bit mulchy and that you can mm -hmm. make into mm -hmm. sauce and that are much cheaper. It's the same with different cuts of meat. I think that a really healthy food supply would begin to address the lower end of that market with fresh produce and directly sold as well. Mm -hmm. um, and that's that's the kind of challenge. I mean, it's it's also about waste. You know, it would help to mitigate waste and it would help to, um, you know, change some of the imbalance of, uh, you know, food deserts and food poverty and food banks and all of this kind of stuff. At the moment, it's like, it's, you know, there's this huge split between food banks and and high end farmers markets, but you kind of don't really understand why they can't be the same thing if what happens to all that produce at the end of the day, at the end of the week, that's a little bit ropey, that's a bit green, that's a bit misshapen, you know, that stuff, should, you know, would have always traditionally been sold off cheap at the end of the day. Why can't it be? Well, last time we saw each other, Wendy, um, in Toulouse, seems like years ago now, but it was really only a couple of months ago. 
I had come straight from exactly one of those markets a little uh, higher up in the hills and I was carrying a big box of partially rotten strawberries <laughs> as a souvenir from it. Do you not think that hygiene and um, social distancing and things is going to make that all much harder moving forward? I mean, actually, open air markets, I mean, you know, hygienically, open air is much safer than being inside. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting that the majority of London's farmers markets have stayed open. There are a few councils that have kind of closed them for different reasons, but but they're generally open and people are happy to, you know, queue safely and move around. You, yeah. you, I think it's I think they're probably safer, frankly. So I just want to go back and say you guys have known each other since you were how old? 11? 12. 13. 11, 12, 13. So you're at school together and university together. And you've kind of remained best friends ever since, which is incredible. Well, I tell you that the weird thing is that sometimes we open the FT and we're both in the same issue. No wonder I have no idea what either of you are talking about. (laughs) It's quite funny, isn't it, Wendy? How after all these years, our careers have been so different, and suddenly, and we now, end up in the same place. Thirty years into our careers, they they kind of meet again. It makes me very happy. I'm like, <laughs> what is Marin written about? It makes me very happy that we end up at the same place in the same pink yeah. pages. It made me incredibly happy. Yeah. What are you writing at the moment, Wendy? I'm writing a novel. Of course, you are another novel. Another novel. Is it, it full be- of sex? Yeah, there is quite a lot of sex in it, actually. I've surprised <laughs> myself. <laughs> I've really surprised myself because the first well one, done. there was no sex in it at all and I was squeamish and prudish. And this time, and I, I was loved like... that, by the way. I loved that novel. I loved <laughs> that novel. Thank yes. you. Yes, and it had no sex in it. And that was good. Sex sells, Meryn. We'll find out, won't we, sweetheart? Yeah. <laughs> this one is a coming of age story, so you can't really come of age without sort of tackling a bit of sexual awkwardness. Mm-hmm. It comes with the territory, I think. Well, we ask Wendy because um, you I, you probably haven't seen a copy of Tabitha's book yet, but well, because it hasn't been published, but uh, some of us closer to her have seen bits of it. But her novel is coming out. When does it come out, Tabitha? Oh, my God. July the 9th. Wow. July the 9th. And Wendy, it is absolutely jammed with stuff too racy. <laughs> Too racy for big sisters to read. No, it's just that you're such a prude. But, you know, thinking about you two being at Cambridge together just reminds me of this one time when I came down to spend the weekend with Merrin at Cambridge. And I was always petrified of coming down to see you guys because you all sat in this highly intellectual circle, like having conversations that I, I literally had no idea what you were talking about. And I remember... I don't suppose we did either, to be fair. No, I think, to be fair, that was Merrin. I was mostly depressed sitting in my room all alone watching Pretty Woman on a, on a sort of constant loop, I seem to remember, was most of my third year. And I remember broaching the topic of sex with Merrin once um, about a boyfriend I Tabitha, had. Tabitha, are you absolutely answer... sure you want to talk about no, this? No, I'm just going to say her answer has stayed with me forever. This <laughs> is probably resulted in some of the novel. No, it was that big sister, little sister conversation that you have. And okay, I come on, just get it out. What did I say? No, I'm not going to say. I'm not going to oh, say okay. what you said. Oh, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to say it's kind of scarred me for life. Oh, no. But that's why you write novels. I mean, I think you write novels in order to sort of, you know, touch the scar or unpick the baggage or unpack I think something. It's I mean, something it's, it's like, like you that. work through a lot of issues. <laughs> I think you <laughs> writing do. novels. so true. It's so true. See, I don't want to. I'm not going to write a novel because I don't want to delve into myself at all. I don't want to pick. No, any please scars. don't. No delving. Don't. No novels. 
we don't want to know. But I, I think probably the difference between what Wendy and I do is that, you know, the Sun Review mine is a kind of filthy bonk buster, but Wendy gets very good intellectual <laughs> reviews. Yeah, and no sales. <laughs> well... I, ke- I keep thinking, must write that bonk buster. That'll fix it. That'll be my ticket. Maybe you could get Tabitha to write your sex scenes. <laughs> Maybe. I'm sure Wendy's very good at her own. Meryn refuses to read mine. I don't know. It's kind of, I really did surprise myself. I just, I didn't set out to write the sex scenes, but they just, you know. What happens when you read them back? Does it make you cringe? No. No. Not yet. No. Not yet. I, yeah, you just have to take out all words of like, that begins with T-H-R. So no throbbing or thrusting. Uh, that's, you've been scarred by Mills and Boone. What do you mean scarred by Mills and Boone? Speak for yourself. Everything was throbbing and thrusting in Mills and Boone's when we were children. Sorry, teenagers. You remember children? Jesus. Teenagers. Teenagers. Um, they, they say that the way you write in Mills and Boone is they, you actually, it's formulaic. So by page 40, they have to have done something. By page 89, they have to have done something else. And they break up at another page and they get back together again. And that's the end. And that's how you write in Mills and Boone. Yes, you also have to, you know, subvert your heroine to the manliness of your hero. I mean, not anymore. Were... Surely, not anymore. I don't know, but I do I they never... still exist? The what? I mean, from our era, reading Mills and Boone and 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 a lot of that stuff. I mean, it's like trying to watch, you know, old movies, you know, and it's yeah. always the reluctant kiss and the violent mm. slap mm. and the. I mean, mm. the mm. subtext mm. now of that stuff is Horrible. really weird. I, I do have one very good statistic on this, and that my. HarperCollins, who are publishing my book, also publish Mills and Boone. Okay, so an arm of theirs publishes Mills and Boone. And they told me the other day, and I think it's something like over 50% of the Mills and Boone authors are school teachers. <gasps> yep, go well, figure. Well, that makes sense to me because, because they're articulate, they can write, and they have a couple of months in the summer to knock one out. And they're filthy. Okay, Tabitha. <laughs> okay, so Meryn, I ask you this every week. Um, Sunak is now saying that there is not going to be a good economic bounce back. Where are you at on that this week? Thank you for that, Tabitha. It's <laughs> a pleasure. I will, you know, as, as we say every time we have this conversation, I still think that the bounce back should be more enthusiastic than most people think, uh, partly because of the phenomenal amount of stimulus this has gotten into things. But, you know, no one can control politics. And if the politicians insist on continuing with fairly stringent lockdowns, you can't have a recovery. You can only Mm. have a recovery when you release people. And I still think that when you release people, you will find a pretty V-shaped recovery. But until you do that, you can't have a recovery of any kind. And, you know, up in Scotland now, the government are now talking about basically having people work part-time and go to school part-time, kind of forever. And under that kind of environment, it's, it, it's hard to imagine having a proper recovery. But, you know, release people and mm. you will get a V-shaped recovery. Mm. Is it the same in France, Wendy? I don't know. I think nobody knows exactly what's happening, but I think that we're in that kind of feeling our way forward, inching with our toes out of lockdown moment. And I think people are trying to find their own comfort zone. And I think the difference between Britain and France, which is not very surprising culturally, historically, politically, is that in France, it's very much, you know, state led. And in Britain, I feel like it's more, and Britain, maybe not in Scotland, Marin. But down here in England, it feels more people-led. So it's almost as if the vagueness of the government's um, advice and timetables 
is deliberate. And I kind of don't mind it because I would rather that we were able to sort of feel our way forward than we were told because it's not quite clear epidemiologically what's safe and what's not. And Mm. so I think that this is a sort of natural, we're going to take another two or three months and through the summer probably to sort of feel what feels comfortable for us and what doesn't. Mm. Um, I think that when shops reopen, you know, different people have different comfort levels and different issues. So we'll see, you know, what what works and what doesn't. I think one of the big things is going to be um, the restaurant hospitality industry. Um, it feels like hotels where you're in your own room and you probably feel whether it's right or not sort of hygienically contained in that is one thing. Restaurants, which like schools, is sort of virtually, frankly, impossible to socially distance in any um, serious way is much less so. So I was just reading, you know, about Rome has just begun to reopen, for example, and restaurants can open now with certain kind of rules about distances between tables and so forth. But people are very gingerly beginning to go back. And you can imagine it's just the first week or two and you yeah. imagine people are leery. But maybe in two we- two months, if if the R number is still low and there isn't a huge second spike and things are OK, people will be like, oh, here we are. We're back. It doesn't matter mm. anymore. Yeah. It's interesting, Wendy, the way you say that it's people led, because actually you do yeah. see that up here as well, that people are making the choices before their government mandate. Yeah. Uh, you know, the beaches have begun to fill up up here. The roads are definitely busy, yeah. even, though, even mm. though technically speaking, nothing has changed. And when you see those surveys saying that, you know, for example, uh, 50% of the under 30s are now ignoring the lockdown, uh, you, you can feel that around you. And in a way, government policy yeah. ends up following people's behavior, doesn't it? Which is a as you say, not the case in the rest of Europe. Yeah, and I I don't really have a problem with that. I just, you know, I wish there was better information about, you know, contagion and stuff because it's it's all very muddled. But I think Mm. that that's partly because we don't have very much information. (laughs) Exactly. We don't have very much information on the virus and how how much it's spread or what the nature of the disease is and, and so forth. It's a lot of unknown still. Mm. Um, so I think that we're just feeling feeling the parameters of what feels reasonable to us. I mean, I'm with my mother who's 80, but otherwise in good health. And, you know, mm. we've been pretty good in isolation, but we did have a friend to dinner, but we made him sit on the balcony while we sat inside. Which <laughs> actually felt kind of perfect because we talked through the door and he was, you know, in the open air. So he was breathing and talking and whatever, all those droplet things were outside. And yeah. at the end, we just, you know, took his plate and glass and put them in the dishwasher and washed our hands. And that felt pretty reasonable that to me. Um, even okay, though Wendy, ta- <laughs> I was going to say, I think that we should, we should finish this podcast by asking you to tell us what you cooked him. Oh, no, because I'm just going to salivate. <laughs> Well, it's it's I have been, it's very interesting to me that I have been cooking a lot of Georgian food in lockdown because I really miss Georgia, which is where I lived in the late 90s and wrote my first book. And Georgian food is a very special, very evocative thing. And my mother has a couple of uh, Svanetian salt and some Georgian spices that I brought back over the years in her cupboard. And so I've been making lamb stew with unripe green plums called chakapuli. And I've been you know, oh. pounding walnuts with garlic to make satsivi and Every so often, I'm, I sort of want this taste again. I've been making plum sauce and Georgian dishes. It's sort of curious to me that that was my that's been my 
keep going back to in lockdown. I hope you've had your hair kind of wrapped up in a scarf and your kind of cleavage exposed as some sweat drips down you while you pound all that food. That's kind of oh the visual my God. I have. Stop the sex You stuff. cannot get her out of the novel. It's going to do really well because it's just clearly infected her whole brain. When you're writing with your whole brain in your whole corpus, then it really That's comes it. alive on the page. It's going to be excellent. Well, Marin will never know because she won't read it. I will. I will. Oh, okay. Wendy, it's been amazing. Thank you for joining us. Marin hasn't been mean to me today because you've been on the podcast. So I feel I feel great about that. Well, it is it is, it is older sister prerogative, you know. No, I know. I've, I've dealt with it for years. That will come out in the book plus, as well. Plus, you've got to remember, she is the middle child. The trouble child. I'm, you know I'm still here, right? You know I'm oh, still God, here. Oh, God, <laughs> um, until next week, thank you all so much. Thank you for listening and stay safe and goodbye. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Tess. Right. Bye.